Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. It's so rewarding. The miracles, the absolute miracles, one after another after another, that's what hooked me. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson and welcome to Man Listening. Tammy Bell has run something called the Relapse Prevention Center for decades. And for over 15 years, she has been my therapist. Uh, Relapse prevention means that she treats doctors, lawyers, airplane pilots, people with certificates, usually something like a license that she can hold over their head. And that really is effective. You'll hear her talk about that. But she has helped and just absolutely brought back to life uh, thousands of people. She's been remarkably effective, in part because she doesn't answer to the patient. She answers to a medical board or the, the licensing boards. And so that she can really kind of call people on their shit. She can tell them when she thinks, I think you're being dishonest. And I never had such a certificate, but she certainly called me on my stuff. And, you know, it's been nothing short of a miracle. Um, And so she has, she's a genuine expert and has a lot of opinions. And I spoke to her the week that we learned that more than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses. And so she has a lot to say about that, and I wanted it to be its own separate episode. So here now, Tammy Bell. What would you say if you had the the ear of the president or the the ear of the Congress, who can't pay attention to anything now, but if, if you had the, the ear of, you know, Secretary of Health or the president now, after the 100,000 deaths, what would you say? That it's a complex problem that doesn't have one simple answer or solution, and one thing doesn't work for everybody, and that actually we need a comprehensive process put in place that could save money, that could direct people where they needed to be, and could get the right treatment to the right people. But we don't do that now. It's all willy-nilly. Wherever you wind up, you wind up. It's all lucky or not lucky. We have treatment centers that give you massages and treatment centers that treat you. We have treatment centers that have people in there that don't need to be there and shouldn't be there and shouldn't be allowed to come 30 times. We have people that need in treatment and are ready and can't go. I, this all has answers, but it's not easy and nobody has the will to do it. Because some of the overdose problem is combining the benzos you people who are taking Xanax with yeah. alcohol or heroin or whatever. Some of it is just ignorance, and some of it is fentanyl, lethal fentanyl. Yeah. So some of it's a contamination issue. Some of it's 
you know, cross addiction, some of it's, you know, it's a, it's a wide variety of things and a wide variety of people. We keep thinking that, you know, you know, somebody in a single wide in West Virginia or Kentucky is the face of opioid addiction. And it's just not. Mm -hmm. It's just not. No more than a black... alcoholism is the guy under the bridge. All right, or that a black guy in L.A. is the face of crack addiction. And, you know, it's just not. I mean, I knew white guys who were crack addicts all day long. And it's just not. It's just not a simple kind of a thing. I do want to ask you, I'm going to throw out two words and I want your reaction. Uh, methadone. I'm not a fan. Because? Because it's never been a treatment. It's, it's a maintenance program <clears throat> that people join for the rest of their lives. They're not completely clean. It's abused. There's no, there's no effort to get po people off of it, just like Suboxone, which is the middle class or upper middle class maintenance program. There's, uh, there's no plan whatsoever to help these people get completely well. It's just let's keep them from dying, which is a good starting point. The problem is we don't go beyond that. And there's no financial incentive to go beyond that. The financial incentive is to stay on it. I run the Relapse Prevention Center. I've been in this town since 1992. It's well known what I do. I've never gotten a referral from one of them for relapse prevention. From the methadone clinics. Nor have any of them ever come down and said, hey, how about we buy a couple hours of your time for consultation? Tell us what we can do here to help these people. And nor have I gotten one referral. And there's some people who are even harsher who say they're just legalized drug dealers. They're just shifting addictions. Well, I, I'm not that harsh. In any treatment program, the staff is usually mission-driven. The frontline staff is usually mission-driven driven people. It's, it's the people that own it, run it. Addiction has become pretty lucrative. There are people really cashing in on it, they have no idea what they're doing, that aren't ethical, are not skillful, don't hire skillful people. It's really pathetic. There's a treatment industrial complex that's driven by money mm -hmm. and not by mm -hmm. results. And so the ROI, the return on the investment, is calculated, the metric is dollars, not people with long-term recovery. Right by which I mean not years, but decades. And the good treatment centers are under such pressure financially to stop doing what they do. Having said that, there's a person very, very close to me just went into the ER with a blood alcohol of 0.03, wouldn't even admit this person until the blood alcohol came down. And when they finally discharge him five, six days later, um, they discharge him with one of the benzodiazepines because they're concerned about, you know, somebody going into seizures right. from withdrawal from alcohol. Right. Um, but the benzos likewise are not a long-term fix for the chronic alcoholic, the chronic alcohol use disorder, right? Right. But they have a, alcohol as I understand it is the one drug even more than heroin, that you can die, you can straight up seize Absolutely. and die Absolutely. during the withdrawal. Yes, they're more scared of that than any of the other drugs. And so there has to be a chemical withdrawal. Yes, there has to be a chemical withdrawal. Right, you have to taper them they down. You have to taper them down, or they can go into seizure and die. Right, but... And do. 
as I understand it, the problem with methadone is there's not a tapering. There's just one long plateau. There really isn't. They really don't taper people on Suboxone either. Right. Which is more famous and popular right now than methadone. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, Suboxone has naltrexone, the Narcan, so it means you can't use it in conjunction with one of the opioids because it's blocking the receptors, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so you can't get high on something else, but then simultaneously, it's its own synthetic opioid. And you can get high on other things, and you can take too much Suboxone. Right. And it's got a little bit of an opiate in it. Right. And so it has a street value. It does have street value. And so there's a black market. Yes. There are drug dealers who yes. will. And I know personally multiple people who wanted to wean themselves off of the heroin, the oxy, by going out and freelancing and acquiring their own Suboxone. Yeah. And it does not work. Most people who go on Suboxone can't get off of it. Just like methadone. So what is the spiritual connection or to treatment of substance use disorder, addiction? What is the spiritual connection? Right. What's the spiritual component? It's not, it's individualized. For some people, it's their relationship to Jesus. And Jesus gets them through that. For some people, it's the God that I think most people are praying to. Uh, for some people, it's, it's the Buddha philosophies. So it is different for each person. I think for me, what I've always tried to do is tap into that piece of you that connects to that, no matter how it is. I think the most challenging was a, was a Hindu guy because I didn't really understand the connection the way I needed to. You know, I mean, support him in his ideas, but I just couldn't. That one was hard for me, but typically I can, and then atheists, they have their own belief system. They just don't believe in some of the things the masses believe in. So I just think it's, it's, in, it's your connection, however that works. So what works in your decades and decades of experience? You've been doing this well over 30 years. The first thing and the most important thing that the treatment industry or a sponsor or anybody else can do for somebody who's struggling with addiction is to help them understand. This is the number one thing. Help them understand the connection between the problems and the pains in their life and the use of alcohol and drugs. Because that's what the brain disconnects for them repeatedly. Finds a way around or something else to blame and then when they sober up, finds a way to minimize. And if there's one thing that all of us have to do is to keep making that connection. Does this make sense to you? So what you're saying is divorce or? You're not divorced because your husband's a bastard. You're not, you didn't lose that job because they were just making cutbacks. You. Um, didn't get arrested. Did, you didn't get a DUI because the cops lay for you on 77. This you is don't no, have health problems because mm -hmm. you eat yeah. too many tacos. Because no matter how long, and, and even the people that 
that get to the brink of death. And I've had a lot of those who, who, who've been in the ICU dying and miraculously made it and are sober today. Yeah. Um, Do you need to get that? I gotta talk to this right, guy. Right. No matter how long somebody's been sober, it seems like I never stop reminding them of the cost and the consequences and the pain of their addiction. Because I realize that at the deepest level, that's where the disturbance is, that the brain will never stop trying to convince them that didn't happen, it wasn't that bad. I don't care how long they've been sober. And it makes them forget. And it's not just, oh, these things happened. It's the feelings, the sensation, the loss of control, the fear that they had during these events. Because to me, that's what comes back with relapsers. You know, they'll say, I forgot, you know, always had problems with that. Well, I stopped going to meetings. No, that's not what happened. What happened was they start forgetting. And then the things that were important to them to help them deal with the pain become less important. Okay, meetings are one of those things. But the brain starts, the, the addicted part of the brain starts to take over again. That comes first. Stopping meetings is relapse warning sign 30 or 40 for somebody who's who's been sober. So the stopping meetings is a consequence of the shift of the brain telling you you're better. Yes, it's okay now. What was the big deal? Yes. Yeah. And you said you've had people on the brink of death. Oh, yes. Make it, come out of it. And you know, we still have that conversation about, you know, my brain tells me. I said, I know it does. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your brain's telling you. Say it out loud. And um, I like for people to talk about the inner addict, its voice, the comments it makes, the suggestions it has, the ideas it has. Say them out loud. It loses some power. It's really good when I'm not around to say it to your sponsor so your sponsor can laugh and then you can go, oh yeah. Right? Yeah. So. I think Richard Pryor used to talk about talking to the, talking to the pipe, talking yeah. to the... Yeah. Your attic is observing everything in life you are and looking for the window to escape sobriety. It's looking for the window. And all you have to do is crack it for a little air. I'll get in a staring contest with a bottle of single malt scotch and the bottle will win. Mm -hmm. It'll stare me down. Mm -hmm. It's an inanimate object. Mm -hmm. Do you know how fucked up it feels <laughs> to lose a staring contest with an inanimate object? Well, not when it's liquor and you're an alcoholic. Yeah. That doesn't happen to non-addicts. Right. They don't get in staring contests or conversations or anything else. We don't have the voice. We don't have a... You don't, you don't get in a conversation with a glass of iced tea. Right. We don't have that voice. We don't live with that voice. We don't have that compulsion. Right. It's about 10% of the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you believe an addiction is an addiction is an addiction? Or are there very discreet uh, means of treating a heroin addict as opposed to an alcoholic, as opposed to a crack addict, as opposed to a person who's smoking cigarettes and can't stop. I do think there's some differences. I think a heroin addict that's been on the street 
has some trauma and damage that a middle-class alcoholic who's the worst thing ever happened to him is a DUI, you know, uh, I do think there's a lot more to treat for the heroin addict and the compulsion for heroin is more powerful. That's why opiates have such a low recovery rate. That's why we have Suboxone because they truly will just keep going till, I mean, they will die. So it has a place, it's to keep people from dying. I believe in that part of it. The problem is, then we don't come in once they're really good and stable and say, okay, here's the road. Now granted, I know there are people, they're, they're never gonna get well. They're mentally incapacitated and unable. They're uh, totally unwilling. Nothing that you do or say shifts them. So if they make a decision they want to stay on it for the rest of their lives, okay. You know, we just keep them alive. But a large number of those people that are on those management drugs could be helped off to live full lives because they're still under the influence. They'll tell you the ones that get off of it, the impairment that, that they were living under still. Um, so if you want full recovery, um, you, you're, and it's going to have to be a comprehensive long-term thing. You've dealt your whole career with people who have a license. Yeah. Doctors, lawyers, airplane pilots. Is there something about you holding the key to their ticket, something they care about, that actually gives you the leverage you need to get them to do what it takes to get their feet underneath them, to get Absolutely. them some, some solid recovery. <clears throat> what is that? When people sober up, their brain is a mess. They're still an addict. They still think like an addict. Doesn't matter how smart they it are. It does not matter, and it doesn't matter how bad the fall was, the, ba the bottom was. They still think, talk, and behave like an addict. So the one of the nice things about these licensed people is that I can keep them in treatment and keep them going to meetings and get them doing the things they need to do while that brain heals and we know that's a 12 to 18 month process. That's what the average Joe doesn't have and that's unfortunate. But when we get these guys, it's, it's wonderful because you're not gonna do surgery anymore. If I call the medical board and say, he's not showing up for any appointments or I'm unhappy with his performance or I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure he's sober, I mean, all I have to do is say, this guy is a problem, and, you know, you're in trouble. Yeah, they can pull his ticket. They have. So I say, here's all you have to do to keep working. You have to be compliant with things on that contract that they gave you, no drinking and on and and with whatever my treatment recommendations are. That's all you have to do. So you do that, you get to go to work every day and do what it is that you do. Plus they do urine screens, which is great. Uh, now they do um, much more sophisticated things, hair and nails, and they can look back 90 days. They've got an alcohol test now that can tell the last 10 days if you had a dr drink. Uh, you know, we didn't have that at the beginning. That's great. Because these guys, these high-flying lawyers with their names on the door, judges, um, they're not amateur liars. Right. I mean, these guys are pros. Right. They can sell it, and a lot of times it's because they believe it. They do believe it. They do believe it. That's the thing. Um, I, I, I don't think that people are, like, looking at me lying about their disease. They, they're delusional. They believe what they're telling me.
which is worse. <laughs> it's worse. So yes, if we had something over everyone's head who's alcoholic and drug addicted, or the more we can get over their head for about 18 months, the higher the probability is these guys could make it. But they, when somebody just comes in and picks up a white chip and there's nobody holding them accountable, there's nothing that stops them from taking the drink when it gets really bad next week. Um, you know, they, they are at a disadvantage compared to the folks I work with. You know, people always say, oh, your recovery rates are so high. Yeah, I got five years. I got five years. Now, most of them I keep a year. Some of them that have lots of things going on have a year and a half. Some of them choose to stay with me after that. But that is so powerful. That is so powerful. And by the time that their five-year contract is up, they've had, most of them have had the psychic change. Their brain is cleared. They're stable. They've gotten their life back together. They feel better. They've got a whole new social network. They've created that. The monitoring boards have created that for them. If so everybody could have that, Stuart, our recovery rates would be so much higher. For as much of a pain in the ass as it is to the person at a time to say, I'm in Disney World. What do you mean you want me to give a urine screen? Yes. I'm with my family on yes. vacation. It's been four and a half years. That still serves a, a purpose. It does. And I can't tell you how many of them have said to me, if I hadn't had that the first couple of years, I wouldn't have made it. Like today I can hit these triggers and I, I've got the tools to get through them. First couple of years, I'd have been drunk on my ass. Even though I wanted to be sober, I never would have made it. Most of them will say that to you at the end of the five years. This has, this has helped keep me sober, especially at the beginning. Not so much now, because they've got sobriety now. But this is what did it at the beginning. And Joe Blow out there, he didn't have that. He does not have that. I also have a buddy who, he and his wife owned a bar, and he picked up a drink at the bar that he owned, with his wife, and a little voice in his ear said to him, drink that and you lose everything. Yeah. The marriage, the bar, yes. your livelihood, your status, yes. your health, yeah. your life. Mm -hmm. You take that one drink, you're going to lose all of this. And very few of us have that kind of uh, Saul on the road to Damascus kind of conversion, that kind of clear. And that voice in the head is, is the sober part of his brain, which is now as big as the addiction part. Because until that voice grows, mm -hmm. the addiction overrides his thinking. It yells. Yes. It's screaming. And we got this little teeny voice over here. But once that voice gets that powerful, he's really in a good shape. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. There's a guy I know in recovery who it's an old saying he said we get here because of your liver your lover or your lawyer <laughs> it's your health it's your relationships or yeah. it's your legal difficulties yes. might be a DUI and it might be a felony might be a huge divorce um, but it's one of those three biggies that gets you in the door now may not keep you in now, yeah, that's just it. It doesn't keep a lot of them in. It gets their attention. <clears throat> if we had monitoring, serious monitoring for a while, 
you'd see a lot, the AA community would be a lot bigger. They don't make it. They just don't make it. They're not clean long enough to get the changes up here. So, so that's the unfortunate. And that's the thing with the, um, what's the drug that makes you sick if you drink? On Anabuse. It? Anabuse. That's the thing with what's the anti-impulsive drug. There's, there's some kind of shot you can get. Oh, that's uh, Vivitrol. Anyway. So the professionals have an edge. Um, most of them recognize before their five years is up what a help it was. Some of them are able to hang on for five years so they can go back to drinking. Playing the long game. That's a long game. That's a long game. I knew he was faking it. And I told him in our last session, I said, listen, I'm discharging you and you've got a couple more years on your contract. And, yeah, but I want you to know before you leave here today, I know that you don't believe this. I know that you think you can still drink normally. I want you to know I know that. So that means you're hosed because you're at, your alcoholic will not stop. I just want you to know if it happens, or I should say when it happens, I'm here, come back. Let me help you before you blow everything up. I don't know, your job's gonna be gone. I don't think your wife's gonna hang. You're, it's gonna all be gone if, if I see you again. And two or three years later, I got a call. Andy's lost his job and his wife moved out and he sat over there. I never wanted to be so wrong in my life because I, I almost shared the box of Kleenex with him. The, he went through a box of Kleenex. You know what was interesting? He didn't remember that conversation. He didn't remember me looking him in the eye on the way out the door saying, I know you don't believe any of this. Well, what? tell me what kind of mental disorder does that? Wouldn't that scare the hell out of the average person? When you come back, you won't have, if I see you again, you won't have anything? It's so perplexing mm -hmm. and it's so insidious. Mm -hmm. It's just really, it's not like any other, the literature, the 12-step literature refers to this as a peculiar mental twist which precedes the relapse. Yeah. The change of the mind yes. before you pick up. And it's addressing that. And I think you made such a wise and helpful point when you said, if you'll just open your mouth and tell us what you're thinking, mm -hmm. then we can deal with it. If you keep that thought bottled up, it's just going to get louder. Mm -hmm. It's just going to grow. Yeah. Yeah, I always encourage people to keep telling their sponsor what their addict is saying to them. Keep that telling inner them. Addict. Keep telling them. Keep telling them. Yeah. Not your spouse. They get upset. You know, the price you pay for being on the front lines is you see the tragedies firsthand. The, the payoff is that you see the miracles. Mm -hmm. And talk a little about that. It's got to be enormously gratifying who are the successes that warm your heart. So I'll say two things about that. Here's the first one. When anybody finds out what I do for a living, they say, Oh, thank, thank you, thank God for people like you, like it's some big hard job or something. And I tell you that because even though people always say, oh, it must be so hard. Even though I'm sitting across from people sometimes who, com who feel completely broken down, 
I feel for them, I can connect to the pain that they're in, but my focus is down here. It's down the road, like I know where they can get to. So I don't get too caught up in, this pain's important that they got right now. I see it as beneficial, but I also am looking, okay, if we do this and this and this, here's all the things that need to happen to get him down here. So that's the first thing I would say about that. The second thing I'd be say, oh God, are you kidding me? It's so rewarding. The miracles, the absolute miracles, one after another after another, that's what hooked me. George M. in 1982, January 1982, hooked me because I watched the miracle. I never wanted to do anything else again. I watched him get sober. He thought I was his intervention, but he was mine. I get to, I mean, you know, I think of this. I mean, I remember one of the trauma surgeons I worked with once said to me, um, I said, I don't really understand completely what you do. And the way he explained it is when something horrible like hits the ER and the other doctors are like, shit, <laughs> they call him because he can walk in the door, get the vitals real quick and figure out where to start. And he said, you never want me to be called in on the case because one, there's a decent chance you're not coming off the table. Two, if you come off, you're probably never gonna be the same. <laughs> you know, he does some, some serious stuff. Impressive guy, sweet guy, God, sweetest heart. You know, you always think of surgeons as these terribly curt and rude, just, just a sweet man. But I have worked with that guy on and off for over 15 years. And I know what he's, what he's doing every day. I know about the research he's been involved in to, to teach handicapped animals how to uh, walk again and hope that that's going to, you know, have some application to humans. I just, yeah, I have seen my people in magazines, newspapers, television. I've watched 2020 one night and watched them interview some of my folks. I mean, I've been places and there they are. Doing wrote books. Amazing, yes. Credited you. Amazing things out there. And I'm like, it gives me that, uh, it's a wonderful life experience. Mm -hmm. You know, like, um, what was that guy's name? Jimmy Stewart played who? George. George. George Bailey. I have a George Bailey feeling that I have, I'm making a difference and it has, you know, it's, it's a huge ripple effect. Yeah. So, so I'm glad I couldn't, I never, I'm glad I didn't get the scholarship at Ohio State and I went to college later and paid my way because <laughs> that's the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. Do you have a therapist? I don't. I did therapy in my 20s. Yeah. Um, didn't have a ton to work on. Uh, but I did go for a while in my 20s. One, I wanted the experience. Two, I wanted to see what could get in my way. Three, you know, just resolve some. I haven't had big things happen. And now, as an older woman, I've had tremendous loss. So that's been the first real challenges to me in my life has really been the last couple of years. Like parents? Everybody. Yeah. Everybody close to me just about has Siblings. been. Siblings? My sister and brother are okay. Uh -huh. But the people really close to me, I've lost three of them completely and one of them is seriously ill. So uh -huh. it's been a lot in the last couple of years of loss. 
and then you add the fact that I'm walking away from this. This is huge loss, huge. So that's what I'm wondering is, um, uh, how do you process that, that grief? I process it every day as it comes up. Some days it doesn't bother me and I don't think about it, and other days I, I realize what I'm doing. My husband is a good sounding board, and two of my close friends are therapists. Um, I talk to them whenever I need to, but it's, and they check on me. You know, it's, uh, I've had some painful days here already trying to leave. Yeah, because there are a lot of people who say, oh my God, what am I going to do without, what do you tell those people? What am I going to do without Tammy? It never was me. I am, uh, I tried to tell them all. I didn't do any of these things. You did all of these things. I walked alongside you what you did. I've been here for you. I didn't do any of it. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Yeah. And they've all got sponsors and they've all got <laughs> friends and you know, uh, what's not hard. putting all that on me. What, what's hard is not the, oh, what am I gonna do with that? You know, I do have some of that. I don't buy into it. I never have. When people go, oh, you saved my life. No, I didn't. You know, they're putting it on me, so I don't fight it too much because they seem to need that, but I don't believe it. But what does bother me is when they cry, and uh, I've had a lot of that. You know, I can remember the very first person I told I was retiring. This guy's been sober 20 years. Big, strong guy, very successful. And I told him, and we were on the computer, and the first thing I saw was his eyes fill with tears, and it just shot right through me. like. I'm not the one causing the pain usually. <laughs> and he's like, the first thing out of his mouth without thinking was, what am I going to do? And then he caught himself and he goes, oh, I'm so glad for you. But I've also left the parking lot uh, a couple weeks ago and the person was sitting here crying at the end of the session and we said goodbye. I closed the place down and I went and get in the car and I looked over my shoulder and they're sitting in their car crying. You know? I'm driving home going, oh my God. That's painful. It's just grief, but it's painful. I don't cause pain. I try to help people get through it. Yeah. If we get struck by lightning today and the only thing that survives is this little piece of audio, what is your legacy? I don't know. I've never thought about it. Well, think about it. What does your gut tell you? I, I don't know, Stuart. What's the, what do you want the first line of the obit? What do you want the memoriam? I've never thought about it because honestly, I've never thought about leaving it. How's that for being weird? <laughs> I've never thought about leaving it. Well, I will say helped thousands, probably tens of thousands. Honorary alcoholic. <laughs> My daughter in first grade said in front of her whole class on one of the t bring your parent to school day, my mother, she's a big alcoholic. <laughs> and I realized she thought I was one just from listening to conversations around the house at six years old. She said, and alcoholics are, are good people. <laughs> <laughs> well, right there is an education. <laughs> Advocate major advocate, I think, for alcoholics and drug addicts, I would like to think. 
Um, and and Stuart, from from guys being told by their sponsor to not come and see me, to the end of my career, people saying, picking up the phone to heaven, saying, my sponsor said I need to make an appointment with you. What a shift! To to to, I think one of my second greatest honor, Father Martin's the first. The second greatest honor is the recovering community trusting me. Never questioning the fact that I'm not one having any. Uh, negative impact on someone's 12-step program. Finally getting over that hurdle because a lot of people were told you can't go see her. Yeah, and that it's not an either or. Mm -hmm. Any more than when you break your leg, you don't go to a meeting, you go right to the hospital. <laughs> people have, uh, in the early days, would say, uh, now are you in recovery? And typically I'd go, I'm going to let you try to figure that out. I go, oh, you are. And I said, well, will it make a difference if I'm not? If I can help you at all, does it make a difference if I'm not? Yeah. You know, but yeah, I've, I've had that question a lot. And so I haven't heard that for years. Nobody questions it anymore. Yeah. But that, the acceptance of AA, the members of AA, the majority, I think, of members of AA is uh, the second biggest honor of my career. Well, I won't cry, Thank but you. I honor, respect, and admire you so very much. Thank you. And I really appreciate everything you've done for me personally and for more friends than I can say grace over that think the world of you. Oh, I loved so. it all. My last session with Tammy Bell is next week. I cannot guarantee you that I will not cry then. I want to tell you why I went to see her, because it wasn't because I thought I was going to relapse. I had more than a decade of sobriety um, when I first went to see her, and it was because I thought I was sabotaging myself. I thought I was undermining my own best interests. The first time I went for an interview for something called the Neiman Fellowship in Journalism, I felt like that I tanked the interview. Some part of me was trying to sabotage myself. And so before I went to the second interview, um, a couple of years later in 2007, I wanted to meet with Tammy and to see what it was I was doing to intentionally undermine myself. And we spent a lot of time unpacking how people act in ways that are not in their own best interest. And that is something that is not unique to alcoholics, drug addicts, people experiencing substance use disorder. So I just had to put that as a footnote and say, yes, I'm a person in recovery from alcohol use disorder. My biological father died of acute alcoholism so it's real it's not made up but there are a whole host of ways in which my life is unmanageable I don't run it in the best way for me and I'm a huge believer in having whether it's a licensed clinical social worker psychologist therapist of some kind a person who can look you in the eye and say, as Tammy has said to me, bullshit. Um, 
that can call you on your stuff, look you in the eye. We all need those people who will level with us. So I just adore her, respect her so much, and I want to say thank you, Tammy Bell. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. And a huge thank you and shout out to everyone who has supported Man Listening on this, our 101st episode, with more than 40,000 downloads, 60 countries on six continents. Thank you, everyone, from the very bottom of my heart. Thanks so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks.